Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Redlands campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. It's claimed that there are two certainties in life, death and taxes. I want to suggest that there are three certainties in life, death, taxes, and sadnesses. It's highly unlikely that anyone will walk through their life on this earth without having to face sadness. If I was, asked you, if I was to ask you the question, what's the saddest thing you've ever been through, what would your answer be? Well, I've got many nominations. There was the decision to have to turn off my mother's life support system and sit beside her bed with turtle dove. I'm not going to use my wife's name, okay? Turtle dove um, and just watch her pass slip away. There's the rather ugly divorce that our second youngest daughter's going through, the impact it's having on the three kids. There's been other things in the churches that I've been in that haven't been very pleasant. But while you're thinking about what yours is, let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts today. Give us minds that would listen to what your Holy Spirit is saying to us individually and as a church, Lord. Father, take away any distractions. Help us to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. I was pastoring the South Pacific Evangelical Fellowship Church in Latoka, Fiji, and Cherub Cheeks was writing programs and teaching counselling strategies and, and skills with Empower Pacific in Fiji when Cyclone Winston hit on Saturday the 20th of February 2016. It was a Category 5 cyclone. Winds were 233 to 306 kilometres an hour. 44 people died. 40,000 homes were totally destroyed and 200,000 people were left homeless. I remember that night. On the Wednesday, we were put on cyclone alert. So we did the usual things. You try and tape up your windows. You go and buy canned food, water. Make sure you've got gas in your bottles, torches working, got batteries for your torches. And you just sit and wait. On Thursday and Friday, the cyclone went to the east of the two main islands of Fiji and just up headed for Tonga and we just waved it goodbye. Then on Saturday morning, we got word that it had done a U-turn and it was heading back to the north coast of the main island of Fiji. So we called church off and we just sat and we waited. About half past 11, it slowly built up, but about half past 11 that night, it eventually hit properly. I reckon the wind was, I just remember the noise. It was like you're on the runway and four jumbo jets of reverse rust trying to break and the noise was just incredible. Our house was a poured brick house, but we could feel it shaking. I thought I'd taped up all the windows and did everything I was supposed to do, but somehow because the water was coming, the rain was coming sideways, it was going along the ceiling and we're sitting inside with umbrellas. It's raining off the roof. For the weeks after that cyclone hit, Schools were shut, 
The shops were shut. The roads were closed. The resorts were shut. There was no work for anyone other than to help with the clean-up. And people were walking around like they were in a trance, just without hope. 200,000 people. How do you find homes for them? Well, Australia sent over a lot of tents, and those tents are still there today. People didn't have money. There was no resources to rebuild. They figure about 350,000 people, that's half of the um, population of Fiji, experienced difficulty because of the cyclone. It was heartbreaking just to see the sadness and the hopelessness of the people. People walking around just crying. I wanted us to focus on sadness because I was trying to prepare you to look at what I believe is the saddest passage of Scripture in the entire Bible. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 8. But before we get to that, I wanted to show you some pictures, I think, didn't I? I've nearly forgotten about that. Did you show those pictures? Yeah, you've seen them? Good. 1 Samuel 8, verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. Verse 7. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. Verse 11, he said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take his sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plough his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Verse 16, your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he'll take for his own use. He'll take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us to go out before us and fight our battles. Verse 21. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. God's chosen people, Israelites. Out of all the nations of the world at that time, God could have chosen anyone. He chose the Israelites to be his people. He loved them. He redeemed them. He nurtured them. He guided them. He protected them. He provided for them. 
yet they reject him now in favour of having an earthly king. Verse 7, God was speaking to his prophet Samuel. He said, it's not you that have rejected me. They rejected me as their king. How could they do that? After all God has done for them. They've very quickly forgotten about the worldwide famine that led them down into Egypt. How initially they thrived in Egypt. They were given the best of the land in Goshen. And they prospered. And they grew in number. Then a new Pharaoh came to the throne and they became his slaves. They cried out to God. He answered their prayer with the 10 plagues, finally with the Passover. Then he led them out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, drowned all Pharaoh's chariots and soldiers in the sea. He provided them with manna, with water from a rock. Then there were the events, the events of Mount Sinai, the law, the tabernacle, the walls of Jericho, the promised land. Despite all that God had done for them, the Israelites wanted a king. They wanted to be like all the nations that surrounded them. They're sick of being led by the patriarchs, judges, prophets, elders, tribal leaders. They wanted what all the other nations had around them, an earthly, visible king. You see, they're looking over the fence because the grass is greener on the other, other side of the fence. What they didn't realise is those on the other side of the fence were looking over at them saying the grass is greener there. Despite God's warning about how hard it was going to be, despite knowing that they were going to go into slavery to this king that they wanted, God said, okay, you can have him. But when you get that king, know this. When you pray to me to release you from the slavery that you're going to be into this king, I'm not going to hear and I'm not going to answer. God allows the people to have a king despite the fact he knew it wasn't what was best for them. So here's lesson number one for today. Sometimes God lets us have what's not good for us so we can learn what is good for us. God loves us so much that he's willing to, for us to use our free will to wander away, do our own thing, even though he knows it's not good for us, so that we can learn the hard lessons that will bring us back into a closer relationship with him. It's not God's will for us to stray. But if that's what's needed for us to get close to God, then that's what he allows to happen. Isn't that the story of the prodigal son? Isn't that what it's all about? How he demanded his inheritance from his father, although his father's still alive. And he went off and he had a great time, wasted all his money, spent it on everything. When his money ran out, his friends went. And a good Jewish boy ended up living in a pigsty, looking after the pigs, eating what the pigs ate and they had this great breakthrough moment. My father's servants are better off than I am. Maybe if I go home, my father will allow me to be one of his servants. And so he went home. And when he got there, he was welcomed by his father like he'd never ever left. And that's the pattern for the way God treats us. He allows us to wander off and do our own thing. And he just waits patiently for us to come to the realisation that we need to return home. And when we do, he welcomes us like we never ever left. God allowed the people to have the king they thought they needed. However, the kingdom only lasted for 120 years. Three kings, King Saul, 
King David, King Solomon, each ruled for 40 years each. Now, sons and birth order were supposed to determine who was going to succeed the past king as the new king. It was handed down from father to oldest son. We know all about that. We've seen it just recently. When Solomon died, his oldest son, Rehoboam, was supposed to come and rule over the 12 tribes of Israel just as he had. But right from the start of Rehoboam's reign, he ran into opposition from a man named Jeroboam. Jeroboam rose to prominence when King Solomon was rebuilding the terraces and the walls of the city of Jerusalem. 1 Kings 11.28 Now Jeroboam was a man of standing and when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labour force of the tribes of Joseph. Jeroboam came to King Solomon's attention because of his work ethic. He was a man of standing. It means he was strong and a hard worker. So he was promoted. But as soon as he was given power and position, he started to undermine King Solomon's reign to the point where Solomon issued a death warrant upon Jeroboam. So he fled down to Egypt and lived there until Solomon died. Here's lesson number two. It may take a position of power and authority to reveal your true character. I've seen lovely people both inside and out of the, outside of the church turn from holy to Hitler once they've been given a position of power and authority. The biggest mistake I've made as a pastor in 40 years was the appointment of some people to position because they couldn't handle it. Power and position can corrupt like nothing else can. It distorts your moral compass and along with it, your good character and your good reputation. The warning here is to be careful as you climb up the ladder of success that your moral sense doesn't decrease and it doesn't affect your relationship with God because your inner character is often revealed when you have a, power, a position of power and authority. You see, power and authority comes with T's and C's. Don't let it turn you into someone you don't want to become. English Politician Lord Acton said in 1887, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely and nothing's changed. As soon as Jeroboam heard King Solomon had died, he returned to Jerusalem and led a rebellion against the newly appointed King Rehoboam. Now Jeroboam wasn't a nice person. The summary of his life is found in 1 Kings 14.9. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. How would you like to have that printed on the headstone of your grave for everyone to see? You've done more evil than all who lived before you. When Jeroboam returned from Egypt, the 10 northern tribes of Israel appointed him as their king, fulfilling the prophecy of Abiyah, the prophet in 1 Kings 11. He wore a new coat, he saw Jeroboam coming. He tore the coat into 12 pieces, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. He gave 10 of those pieces of his coat to Jeroboam as a prophecy that one day he would rule the 10 tribes of Israel as their king. Jeroboam's first act as king of the 10 tribes was to go to Rehoboam and demand that he make life easier for the people, to give them relief from the heavy burden of taxes and obligations that had been placed on them by King Solomon as he underwent his rebuilding program of the city of Jerusalem. Firstly, Rehoboam went to his father's older and wiser advisers. What should I do? 
And they said, give the people a break. Give them what they want. Reduce the taxes. Make life easier for them somehow. So then he went and got the advice of her mates, the guys he'd grown up with. And he took their advice and declared this. My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Here's lesson number three for today. Be careful who you seek counsel or advice from. Many, many people be willing to give you lots and lots of advice. But few people will give you good advice. Advice is free, but you may have to pay a big price for following it. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. How does bad company corrupt good character? By giving, giving bad advice. The juvenile crime epidemic that's sweeping Queensland at the moment is nearly always done in groups, very rarely a person on their own. One person gives the group bad advice. Let's go and steal a car and go for a joyride. And so all the others agree and off they go because of the bad counsel of one person. To misquote an old saying, good advice has a thousand fathers, bad advice is an orphan. Choose wisely who you seek counsel and advice from. So it won't cost them anything if it goes belly up, but it may well cost you your character and a lot more. See, bad advice was the issue that brought about God's people becoming divided into two kingdoms. King Rehoboam's reign was only just over two tribes, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, instead of the 12 tribes he was supposed to be the king over. Nation of Judah had 20 kings, 12 were evil, 8 were good. The nation of Israel had 20 kings and one queen, and all were rotten to the core and led the people away from God. There are two phrases that are used to describe the kings of Judah and Israel, and I want us to take note of them because probably everyone here today will fall into one of those two categories. 1 Kings 11:4. As Solomon grew old, his wife turns his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Solomon's heart was not fully devoted to the Lord. Now Solomon is the most famous king of all time. He was the wisest man that ever walked the face of the earth. Kings and queens would go and visit him to listen to his wisdom or they, they would send envoys over to listen to his wisdom. Yet in the latter part of his life, his heart was not fully committed to God. Who wrote most of the books, most of the Proverbs in the book of Proverbs? Probably King Solomon. He probably wrote Proverbs 8, uh, verse 9, chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It seems that King Solomon, the wisest man in the world, like us, struggled to do what he knew. He knew the importance of honouring God. He wrote a proverb about honouring God, but he couldn't do it. So here's lesson number four. Most of us are better at hearing the word of God than we are at doing the word of God. There are times when we're all like Solomon. We know what we should do, but we don't do it. We're hearers of the word, not doers of the word. Let me remind you, the Bible is not for head knowledge, it's for doing. It's not for information, it's for action. 
It's not a book of suggestions for discussion or options that we get to choose from. It's not a book of advice. It's a book of commands to obey. Solomon's wisdom came from God. He appeared, God appeared to Solomon in a dream and said, what do you want me to give you? Who doesn't want to have that offer from God? What do you want me to give you? Well, Solomon's request is in 1 Kings 3, 9. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil. God gave Solomon what he asked for. Verses 1 Kings 4, 29 to 30 and 32 to 34. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insights and a breath of understanding as measureless as the sands of the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also spoke about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. Sometimes I've wondered what I would ask for if God said, what do you want? I'll give you whatever you want. I'd probably be thinking about inheriting a zillion dollar castle from a long lost relative in Scotland or maybe winning Powerball or something carnal anyhow. What would you ask for? You see, what we ask for reveals a lot about the state of our heart. So here's the fifth lesson for today. Guard your heart. Our commitment to the Lord can be so easily diverted and distracted to other things. The experts tell us our minds are bombarded with somewhere between 6,000 and 70,000 thoughts a day. Don't try and count them. How many of your thoughts each day are about God? Because whatever occupies your heart and your mind will reveal what you're most committed to. Matthew 6.21 says, For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Our hearts reveal what's most important to us. Jeremiah wrote this about the heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Guard your heart or it will stray. Not might stray, it will stray. It's deceitful. It's beyond cure, so you have to guard it. The word guard is military imagery. You need to make sure you have a sentry guarding your heart 24-7, watching over it and protecting it, otherwise it'll stray. The Bible tells us about several kings who started off with their hearts fully committed to the Lord. But because they didn't guard their hearts, they strayed and they wandered and they allowed other things to crowd out their commitment to God. We've already seen that with King Solomon. Here's another one. 2 Chronicles 26, verses 3 and 4. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. His mother's name was Jechaliah. She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord just as his father Amaziah had done. Uzziah, he's also known as Azariah in the Bible, was a great teenage king. He brought about revival among the people. He turned the back to worshipping God. He honoured God. He prospered. God blessed him. His, his uh, territory expanded. It lived in a great time of unprecedented peace. But then we read in 2 Chronicles 26, 16, 
But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God. Over and over we read about kings who were faithful to God at the start of their reign and at some point they let their hearts wander and they became distracted and turned away from the Lord. Notice what caused Uzziah's downfall. He, uh, he became powerful and his heart became filled with pride. He couldn't handle the power that went with his new position. Pride took over and ended up with the same problem as Jeroboam had. Power corrupted his moral compass and destroyed his relationship with God. A good start doesn't guarantee a good finish. John Stephen Akwari represented Tanzania in the uh, 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. About halfway through the race, he wasn't leading. He tripped and fell. There was a bit of nudging and elbowing going on at a drink station. Dislocated his knee and gashed it badly in two places. But he kept on going. He got up and he limped and he limped. When he got to the Olympic Stadium to do that final lap that they do, they wouldn't let him in. They thought he was a trespasser. The marathon finished two hours ago. Medals had been presented. Officials had all gone home. There were only a couple of hundred people in the stadium at that stage and a few TV cameras and interviewers. Eventually they worked out he was a legitimate runner in the marathon, so let him in to do his final lap. And there's some tragic footage on the internet about him doing that last lap, how long it took, how he limped and half run, half staggered. Eventually he fell across the line. One of the TV editors rushed over and put a microphone under his face and said, excuse me, sir, when you knew you couldn't win the marathon, when you damaged your knee, when you knew that you were damaging your knee further by continuing, why did you keep on going? And he looked at the cameraman and he said, my country didn't send me 5,000 kilometres to start the race. They sent me 5,000 kilometres to finish the race. See, Jesus didn't come to earth to start his race. He came to start and to finish the work of being our saviour. Here's lesson number six. Jesus died that we may finish the race that he's given us to do, not to just start it. A good start is a good start, but a good start doesn't, doesn't guarantee a good finish. God's got us all on a race. The race he set out before us. I'm fully confident that I could start the Gold Coast Marathon and I would be fantastic for 20 metres. I'm also very confident that I couldn't finish it. I've reached the stage of life where a 42 kilometre trip and a car requires two toilet stops. <laughs> Jesus was finding the going really tough in the Garden of Gethsemane to the point where he sweated blood and he asked his father, if there's some other way, some way of me not having to do this, can we do it? Luke 22:42. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. What were Jesus' last words on the cross? According to John 19:30, when he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What was finished? The work that God had given him to do. Interestingly, in the Greek, it is finished is one word. It's tetelestai. And it's the word that marathon runners would scream out as they crossed the finish line. Tetelestai, it's finished. 
See, Jesus didn't die for us to start the task he's given us to do. He died that we might finish the task he's given us to do. There'll be times when you feel like quitting the race God has put before. It's just too hard. There'll be times when you are finding it hard to serve with some people. It seems like God has surrounded you with complete dipsticks. There'd be jobs you don't want to do, places you don't want to go, money and time you don't want to give. But as long as we have breath, we must finish the race God has given us to run. Here's a better epitaph for your grave. The words of Paul in 2 Timothy 4.7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. The other type of heart that's mentioned, and it's only about the kings of Judah, this one, in 1 Kings 15.14, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. Here's lesson number seven. It's the last one. God's desire is for everyone to have a heart that's fully committed to him all of their life. God loves hearts that are fully committed to him. In fact, he seeks after them. 2 Chronicles 16.9 For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. God doesn't look for half-hearted people. He doesn't look for no-hearted people. That is people who are yet to acknowledge God as their Lord and Saviour. He looks for hearts who are fully committed to him. So he can strengthen your heart to help you be empowered to finish the race he's given you to run. What's it mean to have a heart fully committed to God? Matthew 22, 34 to 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You know, we can shorten these verses simply to say, love the Lord your God with all. Everything after all is just trying to explain what it means to love the Lord your God with all. The church worldwide in the West is struggling. Many churches are shrinking. Many people are turning their backs on God. Many people today are doing exactly what the Israelites do. They're rejecting God as their king and openly rejecting him as king. And many are appointing themselves as the king of their lives. However, understand this. The greatest threat to Christianity does not come from outside the church. The greatest risk to the church and the number one reason I believe that God is being rejected is because people like you and me, Christians, too many of us are living half-hearted lives. We're rotting from the inside out. We're not behaving as citizens of the kingdom of God should. Too many hearts are not fully committed to the Lord. We're trying to live with one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom. And the result is we've become half-hearted. A National Church Life survey revealed that in Australia now, every Sunday, there are more people who claim to be Christians not in church than there are Christians who are in church. They've also revealed that the new definition of a committed Christian is someone who attends church once a month. How committed would you consider your car to be if it started one time in four? 
How committed you would you think your electricity company is to you if they gave you a bit of electricity one day and four? You see, we're becoming a generation of half-hearted Christians. Church has become an optional extra. Something you do if you've got nothing else to do. It seems that church nowadays has to revolve around all of our other activities. The church, despite its faults, and yes, we have faults, it's still the bride of Christ. And we're still not to forsake her. We're not to stop meeting together. We're meant to encourage one another to have a heart that's fully committed to God. We need transformation. We can't shape the world until God shapes us. While we're half-hearted, we can't do it. 1 Kings 18.21, Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If If Baal is God, follow him. The people said nothing. It's time to stop wavering. It's time to start living what we claim to believe. So what's the state of your heart today? In a little while, I'm going to give you a choice today. I'm going to give you the chance, I'm going to give you the challenge to make your choice known. I'm asking you to choose today who you will serve. I'm, asking, I'm going to ask you to choose your preferred state of heart, half-hearted or fully committed to God. Remember, to have a heart that's fully to go, committed to God means you've got to surrender all and all of the time for all of your life. Ben, I need you to come back now, please. I, when I was uh, in Fiji, a lot of the young men would come to me for advice on affairs of the heart. They used to call me Vuniwai Laloma. Vuniwai Doctor, Laloma, Love. I was known as Dr. Love or the Love Doctor. I gave unbelievably wise advice when it came to affairs of the heart. So Ben, I need you to play something now. You've all seen a DVD or a movie, Shamsa on telly, where this couple have hated each other's guts at the start. Couldn't stand each other. But then, you know, slowly they just get to tolerate each other and then they get to like each other. Then they get to love each other. This couple have done that. And they're madly in love with each other. So he makes a reservation at the most romantic place in town, a French restaurant. It's built out over the sea. It's got a glass bottom so you can actually see the waves gently lapping underneath. No lights in the place, it's all candles. There's roses on the table. There's a string quartet playing beautifully romantic music over in the corner. And they just eat their meal, holding hands and staring, gazing into each other's eyes. After they've had the meal, they go leave the restaurant, walk down the steps. Instead of going back to the car park, they turn right, kick their shoes off and they walk along the most magnificent, white, fine sands you've ever seen. It's a full moon. The lighting is just perfect. It's a gentle breeze blowing and her hair's blowing in the breeze. And they're just walking along holding hands. All of a sudden they stop. He grabs her other hand and he falls to his knee. And he looks up at her and says, Darling, will you marry me? I love you with half of my heart. Has anybody here received a proposal like that? Anyone offered a proposal like that? Because you need to come and see Vuni Wai Laloma. 
I try to imagine that scenario in my case and I reckon I would have rejected or would have um, really been sorry for saying that even after I got out of hospital. Yet, you know, that's what we're saying to God continually by our actions and our choices and our priorities. We're saying to God, God, I love you with half my heart. I can assure you God doesn't love you with half your heart. He loves you with all of his heart. Can you imagine standing before the throne of God and saying, God, I love you with half my heart. I served you with half my heart. Where's your heart this morning? Are you half-hearted, whole-hearted or no-hearted? Praise God, I know many people here are whole-hearted to God. But there'll be people here today who are half-hearted. There'll be some who have no heart for God. So I'm going to challenge us all today with a question. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to respond and indicate your choice by standing or remaining seated. If you're fully committed, you want fully hearted for God, and I want you to stand, not now. If you're choosing from this point on to become wholehearted in your relationship with God, I want you to stand. If you're not, remain seated. Now, you don't remain seated so we can run around with a pen and work out, oh, they're sitting down. No, this is just an opportunity for people whose hearts are fully committed to God or want their hearts to be fully committed to God to stand. So choose yourself this day who you will serve. Sit or stand but make a choice. Make that choice now. No matter how hard it seems, no matter what the circumstances, serving to choose God, to serve God wholeheartedly is always the right choice. So I'm asking you now, if you're choosing to serve God wholeheartedly, stand with me. Okay, I'm sitting. If not, remain seated. If your desire is to commit to serving the Lord wholeheartedly, then stand as well. And I'll just pray and then our musos will take over. Heavenly Father, thank You, Lord, for all that You do for us, all You've done, all You're going to do. Father, we ask Your forgiveness for the times that we've been half-hearted in our relationship to You. We've made choices that were not good. We've made priorities that are not good. We've done things that are not good. We've said things that are not good. Father, forgive us. I pray, Lord, that you'll strengthen our hearts. Help us to be wholehearted for the rest of our lives in our commitment to you that you might use us, that we might serve you faithfully, that, Father, we might reach out to those who don't know you. If anyone here today who doesn't know you, Lord, I pray, Father, that you'll move in their heart and that, Father, they will indicate that to someone today. Father, I just pray you'll bless everyone who's still bless everyone who's not, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If we can pray for you or you would like to take a further step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to connect with you. Please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au and click on Get Connected to let us know.